Turn in the book of Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 6, continuing our reading through the book of Proverbs. We'll read verses 6 through 11. Lend your attention, this is the word of God. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Our great God, our Father, we come before you as your children and I give you thanks for your word, for the truth which it sets forth, for the testimony it bears to your steadfast love and the testimony it bears to the state of this sad world and the testimony it bears to the excellencies of your redemption made known in the Lord Jesus Christ. How you've equipped us well by your word, how you nurture us by your word, how you speak to us in and through your word. And we ask that you would be pleased to do that now that you would minister to us in Christ by the Spirit as we consider your holy and righteous commandments. Christ has fulfilled them and ushers us into new life. He continues to open our eyes to indwelling sin, by the holiness of your law. He sets before us that vision of loveliness of life, prompting us ever onwards. How he assures us that indeed this vision of glory, supremely on display in him, will be ours. We partake in it, but one day it will be all in all. This is your good pleasure. So sustain us, Father as pilgrims on the way, in need of bread. Feed us, open our mouths, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. The Old Testament is, the reading is from Exodus chapter 20 as we continue through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism 49 rehearses uh, the second commandment, which I'll read from Exodus 20, and then I'll read question 50 uh, following the reading from Exodus 20. So this is God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above but it, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And question 50 asks, what is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. Amen. Uh, there's a scene in uh, The Magician's Nephew, which is the first of the Narnia Chronicles, um, C.S. Lewis. Uh, fantasy series. Uh, Diggory has made a mess of things, um, and he gets sent by Aslan to make things right. He sends him to a garden where he's to retrieve an apple, and he uh, tells him uh, to pay careful attention to this task. And he makes his way to the garden, and there's a gate at the garden um, instructing any who would enter to take the apple to enter by the gate and not climb in over the hedge. Because what he was about to take and what he was about to approach uh, was no trifling thing. It was not to be approached in man's hubris, but in humility with recognition of the task and the situation that was before him. Uh, the second commandment uh, is often uh, considered as almost a throwaway uh, in the light of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. Um, and then it goes on to talk about uh, idols, literal idols, the making of images. In fact, Christian traditions have collapsed the first and the second commandment into one commandment. There are Christian traditions that do that. They don't distinguish uh, as we do. Uh, between the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, and the second commandment, you shall not make any idols. And in these other traditions, they see those things as basically the same commandment, where the Reformed tradition distinguishes. The first commandment concerns the object of our worship, the true and living God. The second commandment concerns the manner of our worship. That the true and living God must be approached rightly. That the true and living God cannot simply be approached according to man's design, according to man's preferences, in man's way, man's imagination. But the one whom we are approaching, the truth of who this one is, necessitates that he be approached in a certain way. Now, the heart of this command is that God is not to be thought of according to our imagination. That's what the heart of idols is, right? We form and fashion a conception of God. We make him according to our understanding according to our preferences. In many ways, that's what an idol is. 
It serves the practical function of needing to have a God, but basically wanting him on our terms. We want him neatly tucked into a corner we can pull out when perhaps things aren't going well and we can kind of pull the right levers to get him to do what we need him to do and then get him back in the corner <laughs> where he belongs so that he doesn't intrude upon the real God. Idolatry seeks to control God, seeks to coerce God, seeks to manipulate God, seeks to have God on man's terms. God is to be had on his terms or on no terms at all. And this is true by virtue of who he is as God. He would cease to be God if the terms were something else. If God was to be had on man's terms, well, then by definition, man would be greater than God. The second commandment specifies not the object of our worship, but the manner of our worship. And it lays bare that propensity of the heart that is willing to acknowledge God, fine, but will ever be striving to have him on our own terms. Will ever be demanding that we are the ones who determine what he does, how he is to be approached, and who ultimately is in charge. So the second commandment specifies the need to approach God in the way that he himself has authorized, given. We can start simply by marveling that he has given a way to approach God. <laughs> that there is a gate into that garden. That's a wonder considering how the story with Adam ends and he's set out of the garden and there's a flaming sword and a warrior not of this world guarding the entryway. That's the angel, right? This cherubim. Cherubim are not chubby babies who are only active on Valentine's Day. <laughs> cherubim are terrifying spiritual creatures who have a physical appearance or a manifestation to man as a compilation of the most terrifying figures. Lion, eagle, ox, man, four-faced creatures. They're terrifying. And they guard this way, this avenue of access into God's presence. So the fact that God has made a way for sinners... And he has revealed how he, holy God, may be approached by sinners is worth rejoicing over. It's worth giving thanks that he did not leave us to wander east of Eden, but made a way into his presence. And that's what the heart of this commandment sets forth. It's, it's true and right worship. It's celebration that sinners can approach a God in worship. And it's a celebration that he's given us these things in a posture that casts ourselves entirely upon these things. But I think it strikes people as strange, or at least it can. If you're not a, a part of the Reformed tradition and interpretive history, this idea of approaching God according to his terms can strike one as odd. Is that fair? 
If you were to go out into the church at large and say, hey, we can't just approach God however we want, they would be like, that's not true. <laughs> Most people would look at you very strangely, I would think, if you were to tell them that God must be approached rightly. That he's not to be had on man's terms, but he's to be had on the terms that he himself has given unto man. I imagine most people would find that strange. Or maybe they'd say, well, maybe once upon a time that was true. Yeah, there was this whole song and dance that Israel had to do to come near to God. There were priests and they were decked out. And they had to wear certain garments. And they had to be healthy and of a certain tribe. And they had to be purified. And who they married, that was part of the deal as well. And there were these sacrifices, and then you had to use the blood in certain ways, and you had to dispose of one part and keep another part. And the priest got one part sometimes, and the people got another part sometimes. Sometimes God's got the whole thing. So if you told people God had to be approached according to his terms, best case scenario, they're going to say, once upon a time, maybe. But not anymore. Now we can just come to him however we want, however we like, according to our own designs and purposes. Hebrews gives a different picture. Um, it still imagines the same God. <laughs> Lo and behold, it's the same God. Same God that's being approached. The same God who designed all of these elaborate and specific rules for how a sinner was to come near him. It's the same God. And Hebrews makes that point. Hebrews 12, 38. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's now. What do you can't, we mean acceptable worship. All worship is acceptable. No, it says acceptable worship, which implies that there's unacceptable worship, which is very much in the same vein as this concern of worshiping God rightly, of approaching God rightly. And so while it's not a very common notion outside of the Reformed faith, the second commandment plainly teaches in accord with the rest of Scripture that there is a right way to approach God. And it's the way that he has made. Now, if you continue to have this conversation with this hypothetical, broad Christian friend, you can find common ground in saying, we approach God in and through Jesus Christ. And that's the first thing that needs to be said. I'm a little shocked they didn't say that. <laughs> but they do, kind of. Because this is the worship that God has appointed in his word. <laughs> so it doesn't specify Christ there, but Christ is the way for man to worship God. That's what Christ says. He says, I've come 
on behalf of my Father who is seeking worshipers. And it's not going to be on this mountain. It's not going to be on that mountain. That's not the main concern. It's going to be in spirit and in truth. Incidentally, I am the truth. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not just an evangelistic call. Nobody's a Christian apart from faith in Christ. That's the realization and the fulfillment of the entire ceremonial law. Does that make sense? This is not just come to God through faith in Christ. This is every time we approach our God, it is through Christ. To try to approach the God who is a consuming fire outside of the Lord Jesus Christ is to approach him based on your own work, based on your own merits, based on your own deserving, and you will only find judgment. Every time he calls us to gather in worship, we call on him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand before him as those who bear the name of Christ, Christians. I think this is important because I think sometimes in our circles we can miss this step. We love to talk about the regulative principle of worship. We love to talk about the regular. I love to talk about the regular. The regulative principle of worship is beautiful. But the fulfillment of the priestly garments, the necessity of the blemishless priests, blemishless sacrifices, the prescription for what to do with the blood and the bodies and when they had to gather, the fulfillment of all of that is not ministry of word and sacrament. The fulfillment of all of that is Jesus Christ, the true mediator between God and man, who must sanctify all of our worship. And that's humbling. Because it means the same blood has to sanctify the purest liturgy conceivable and the most impure liturgy conceivable. Tell me that's not a danger. We have pure worship. The Reformed tradition has bequeathed us a great gift in this simple, pure worship that we devote ourselves to. We don't boast in the purity of our liturgy. We boast in the one who has made us acceptable to God. This is what Peter says. I mean, this is what Peter says. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the pure liturgy. No, through Jesus Christ. It's humbling and good. It's so good. Because it means the same Christ sanctifies our worship who sanctifies worship that 
maybe makes us a little uncomfortable. <laughs> maybe departs from what we understand to be the regular principle of worship. And that's a good place to be. We don't boast in the purity of our liturgy. We strive for it. I love pure liturgy. We boast in the one who must sanctify all of our worship. The Lord Jesus Christ. That said, we strive for a pure liturgy. And that's also what they say here. We receive and observe and keep pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. So the uh, fulfillment of that ceremonial law is the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we can approach God through him. Every single time we approach God through him, there's no approaching God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he magnifies the Son. <laughs> it's also true that he tells us, according to his word, what we are to devote ourselves to in the public worship of God. And so there's two roles that the word plays here in terms of shaping what we do week in and week out. The first role is that it norms everything that we do. This is the difference between the Reformed tradition and other traditions in terms of their understanding of what has a place in worship. The Reformed tradition has always said the only thing that has a place in worship is what God commands us to do. Other traditions say, well, as long as he hasn't forbidden it, <laughs> then you can bring it. We're saying, no, 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 it's what he requires. It's what he, he specifies. It's what he commands that we devote ourselves to. And so the first role that the word plays in regular principle of worship is it norms our worship. But the second role that it plays in our worship is that it is central in our worship. There's a lot of scripture. There is a lot of scripture. God calls us with his word. He lays our hearts bare with his word. He pardons us with his word. The word is read the word is preached. The word is prayed. The word is sung. The word is eaten. <laughs> Sacraments are visible words. The word is pronounced. It is a word-centric worship. Why? Because we lack imagination? No, because we have a lot of imagination and it's killed a lot of people. Because we're not interested in the vain imaginings of men. Right? You're not here to get my thoughts on Tolstoy, even though I give them freely. <laughs> That's not why you're here. You're here to have the mind of God opened for you. You're not interested in the thoughts of Michael. You're interested in, thus says the Lord. This is God's word. The grass withers. The flower fades. The word of our God remains forever. That's what God's people need. Church gets all wrong in this. They think that somehow you need a, a creative and dynamic speaker. You don't. You need someone who plainly opens God's word for you. God's been pleased to use all sorts of different vessels to open his word. 
He doesn't override the personality of the vessel, but the personality isn't the main thing. You're looking for a faithful minister of the word. One who rightly handles the word of life, to use Paul's language. Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So not only does scripture norm our worship in that we're eager to do whatever it is that God has prescribed for us as that avenue, arena in which we sit expectantly waiting for his blessing to come to us. But that avenue is the word. It's filled with the word. It's the truth of God pressed home upon hearts. Whereby the Holy Spirit ministers to us in wonderful, ineffable, lovely ways. So we receive this word as that which norms our worship. And we receive this word as the means by which we worship. So God welcomes our worship in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment. He's given us a light such that we don't have to grope about wondering, well, how can we approach him? No, he specifies where we can sit expecting him. And not only that, he says, oh, yeah, my word is where you can sit expecting me. But we also sit there expectantly. And that's the final observation. It specifies that. Receiving. That's a posture of humility, is it not? You receive something as a gift. You receive something as a stewardship. It's something that's been given to us. One takes something with an open hand. And so we start to get into the posture of worship here. You think of that perennial temptation of idolatry, which is to manipulate God. Or in the hubris of our foolish understanding, thinking, no, we really know what's right here. We really know what's best here. It's if you do this. It's if you do this. It's you do that. In many ways, it's just a pagan notion of God. We can approach even the gifts that he's given us in this way, right? If I pray the right prayers, then he's going to do what I want him to do. Chances are you've at least considered the possibility that you were passed over for a job or a promotion because you didn't do your devotions. I'm guessing you've thought that way. Of course you've thought that way because you're a pagan at heart. We've all got that paganism in us. Well, I, he's, he's smiting me because I didn't do my devotion. If I'd have done my devotion, then he would have given me what I wanted. I didn't get into this program because I didn't do my devotion or I didn't go to evening worship. We think that way, but it's that coercion model of God. Versus what? Receive. Humbly make known petitions. Humbly stand before him in the area that he has designated. There's a postural reality that beats at the heart of the regulative principle of worship, which is another point that we could probably take all of us to task over. Because we don't use the regulative principle humbly, do we? 
We use it as a, a stick to beat other people up with. But the heart of the regulative principle of worship is that we humbly sit wherever he tells us to sit. Anytime we would use that, anytime we use truth as a weapon, we're breaking the purpose of truth. But there are some iterations of this that are particularly repugnant. You idiot, you're not humble. <laughs> Wait, what? <sighs> There's incongruity there. Do you feel it? Do you see it? Am I making the point clearly? I know I am, because I got three hours of sleep last night. <laughs> There's something remarkably unfitting about using the regulative principle as a means to puff ourselves up. Because... In and of itself, it says we humbly sit, utterly dependent upon a God who has said he'll meet us here. Come on, I'll show you a better way. And it also stands to reason that if we have the purest worship of all the Christian traditions, and I think you can make a good case that we do, the Reformers sought to return the liturgy of the Reformation Church to that early Roman church, that apostolic church. That's what they're seeking to do. And they did it. If we have the purest worship in its liturgy, then it stands to reason that we should be the purest Christians in the kingdom. Doesn't it? The Lord's going to hold us to the account of living up to what he's given us. And so there's room for humility there as well. Those with the loveliest iteration of worship ought to be the loveliest Christians in the kingdom. Because to those whom much is given, much is expected. And we can give thanks once more that we have a mediator who pardons all of our failures to live up to our beautiful ideal. We can also walk away a little bit humble. Because we don't always use these things in that way, do we? And we rejoice that he even overcomes that for good. Let's pray. Our great God, how wonderful you are in making a way for sinners to draw near. How silly we are in so many ways. How foolish we are in so many ways. We pray, Father, that you would enable us to live up to that beautiful ideal. And you meet with us week in and week out magnifying the glory of your grace in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that more and more we would reflect that glory as we cast ourselves, Lord, upon your perfect provision, set forth plainly week in and week out in just a simple, lovely gospel worship where Christ is exalted, hearts are laid bare, your purposes are magnified. Strengthen us in this, O oh Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen.